actually didn't share my message with Duncan this morning. Um, he was, well, I, I did, sort of. I was like, okay, well, we can sit down and um, I'll uh, talk through what I'm going to preach. Last night we got back from the graduation and so I started to, um, you know, put together all the thoughts that I've been gathering through the week and I have to do it on a Saturday night because if anyone knows what my memory's like I'd forget if it was like any longer than that and so I'm going over my stuff and I turn around and Duncan's asleep so um <laughs> so he hasn't actually heard any of my message for this morning or even what I'm preaching on Tash got a little bit of a a preview uh but uh the message I'm sharing this morning one of the things I uh, thought about calling it was the world wants to see Jesus. And I want to talk about inviting people in. I'm going to share from John 12 and verse 20 to start. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the Bible or, or these stories, the Greeks are somewhat the outsiders in this picture. So uh, Jesus himself was uh, a Jewish person and he uh, usually is speaking to Jewish people and most of the gospel accounts, accounts uh, the, the things that happen among those people. And so uh, this opens up with something about the Greeks, and so we immediately know that this is talking about beyond the normal crowd. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida at Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. I had to read that like four times at 11.30 p.m. to work out what was going on. But basically, he's like, I'll tell you, and then the two of them go to Jesus. That would have been an easier way to say that. So Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honour. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us to see you, Lord, and that you have taught us that we have a message that should be seen by the world, Lord, and we know that the world wants to see Jesus. But sometimes we don't know how to show the world who Jesus is, and I pray as we open up your word this morning that we would begin to get a hold of what it takes for us to look like Jesus so that the world could see who he is. We pray, Lord, that as we open up your word this morning, that it would reveal to us something about who we are and something about who you're calling us to be, but ultimately it would reveal your hope to all of us that we would reveal and reflect that to the world in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a bit of a misconception or what I would 
call a misconception. But people are not interested in going to church or interested in knowing who Jesus is. And do you know what? You probably, if you were to say people are not interested in church, we might be right. If we were to say that people were not interested in religion, you might be right. Statistically, if you have a look at uh, where things are headed as each generation progresses, there's less and less interest in engaging in formal religion. There's less and less interest in, in going to church. There's uh, something... Um, that was released recently uh, in America, but I think we're unfortunately a little too similar sometimes to America here. And so the rough uh, outline is about 40 to 50% of people uh, who are under 40 currently identify as Christians, but only 10% are engaged in any kind of church or any kind of practice. Of the others, about 15 to 30, depending on the area, percent are engaged in another religion or another belief system, and the remainder identify as non-religious, not wanting to be engaged. And so if we know, like C.S. Lewis states, that man was created... Uh, for more than this world knows. And so we have this innate understanding that there's something more to life. The Bible says man was created with eternity in his heart. Something bigger than we are is a part of who we are. And so we search. If we know that that's true, both by experience, by our own experience, and what the Bible says, if we know that the world wants to see Jesus. But the world doesn't want to know about church. There may be church where the problem. And I'm not talking just about us this morning. But I'm talking about maybe the way that we have reflected who Jesus is, how we demonstrate what he is to the world, maybe the way that we follow and serve like it talks about, we haven't quite got it all together. And maybe what they've seen is a whole lot more of us than it is Jesus. Because we know the world wants to see Jesus. In this story, we have two that come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And so in his wisdom, does Jesus go out and meet them and tell them about who he is? We don't even know if he actually goes and speaks to these two people who are seeking who he is. It just goes on to explain that in order to see Jesus, there's something we need to know about him. Jesus answered them and saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. When we think of something being glorified, we think of it 
being made prominent so that we can see it, given prime place so that people can give, so, you know, we give it honour, we give it a special attention. Being glorified usually has really positive connotations but the irony of what Jesus is saying here is he says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He is talking about being lifted up, but not the way that we might think that a king should be lifted up. He's talking about what I spoke about last week, about how he would be lifted up on a cross, like we sang about this morning, made sin so that ours could be forgiven. Lifted up in a way that the world would see that God is not a God that demands, but a God that gives his all, that we would see who he is. For him to be glorified and his greatest moment of glory was on a cross pouring out his life so that the world would see who he is. This is his glory, that he is grace, that he is love. That he would give his all. It's really interesting when you make some connections. There's, when a place name is mentioned in a story in the Bible, and here's a hint for all of you who are interested in studying, always look up the meaning of a place name when it mentions it randomly in a story because it has significance. More often than not, even if it mentions that people moved from one place to another, those two places will be symbolic of two things. Here it says that Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, was asked, we want to see Jesus. Doesn't say where the others were from, doesn't say where the Greek guys were from, but that would probably make more sense to mention where they'd come from. You know, if you were to understand the story, that would probably have more relevance. It doesn't say where Andrew is from, doesn't even say where they were in this part of the story, but it mentions where Philip was from. Bethsaida, house of mercy... The word actually comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which is a concept that we get in two stories in the Old Testament, but actually throughout it. One of them being the story of Ruth, who goes with her mother-in-law after her husband's died. Her mother-in-law says, go back to your homeland and go and find yourself a husband and, and do, you know, 
make a good life for yourself while you're still young. And she says to her mother-in-law, who she's formed this great friendship with, Naomi, she says to her, where you go, I will go. Don't leave me behind, I will come with you. We see again when the prophet Elijah and Elisha, Elijah is about to be taken from the world and Elisha is trying to go with him and Elijah keeps trying to say, stay behind, stay behind. Elisha says to him, where you go, I will go. And there's probably a whole series of sermons on the connections there. But we see here, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Where he goes, we also go. See, to see Jesus is to know who he is. Not just in understanding, like we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, in believing in him in a way that says, I know who he is and I believe he was the son of God. But seeing Jesus in a way that says, I will follow where you go, I will go. Where did Jesus go? He went to the people that needed healing. He went to the people who were on the outskirts. He went to the people that no one else would dare go near. He went to those that were seen as the social outcasts of his own people. He went to those that were the least, the last, the left out, the lepers, those who were demon-possessed and even dead. That's where Jesus went. If we want the world to see Jesus, then we need to say, where you go, I will go. Where you go, there I will be also. Where we find Jesus is where we should be found. Where we know Jesus to have been, we should be the church. This radical pouring out of giving all is what we see that this story is telling us of who Jesus is. And if we want to see Jesus, that's what we need to see. If we want to be Jesus to the world as his church, that's what we need to be. There's a saying that says, you haven't given until you've given to someone who can offer you nothing in return. God, who needs nothing in return, and whatever we can offer him in return is not really of much use to him and yet in his grace and mercy he not only gives his all but he includes us 
He welcomes us. He opens his doors to us. And he makes us part of something that he's doing in the church. We step into who he is in the world. See, for all our ministry models and all our church paradigms, they often talk about how to be what people need. We open with trying to be what we as Christians need when our call is actually to give our all to be what the world needs to look like Jesus. And maybe then the world would recognise that they want to see Jesus. When the church looks like Jesus, the world will recognise that they want to see Jesus. When the church leads the way, not lagging behind or even being part of the picture that holds it back, when the church leads the way in compassion, then the world will want to see Jesus. When the church leads the way in justice, when the, world, when the church leads the way in mercy, when the church leads the way in being the light, in representing good character, when the church leads the way, I love the fact that there are so many ways in which Christians have led the way in things that look like Jesus. The thing that I find tragic in studying church history and world history is so often when a Christian has stepped out, I believe led by the Holy Spirit in movements of equality and justice, in movements of healing and wholeness, in movements that seeking to change the world, even in the sciences and in discovery and understanding when a Christian has stepped out so often, a majority of Christians have followed behind to shut that down. You only have to look at the great movements of justice throughout recent history in abolition against slavery, in women's rights, in the health industry, in caring, nursing originated in the church. In the sciences, you look at Galileo and his understanding of the world and there's a mandate on the church to be the light, to show to reveal who God is. And instead of fearing growth and change, see, I'm going to show you something around this text. We need to recognize that the call is that the Son of Man should be glorified. And Jesus even so graciously explains what that takes Assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. Either side of this story, it's framed by two situations. One in verse 9 and one in verse 42. 
that are two things that I believe we're setting ourselves up as the church and that I believe this text is showing us that we have a tendency as those who want to follow Jesus to fall into the trap of that are making it harder for the world to want to see Jesus. Verse 9 says, Now a great many Jews knew that he was there, speaking about Jesus, but they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So the chief priests in this story, the holders of religious power, those that were in authority, in this story, Jesus has raised a man from the dead and his very testimony makes them so uncomfortable. It so upsets their status quo. It brings a new understanding to the way that they'd interpreted the word. Not, it's not just because people were becoming followers of Jesus, but if you understand there's debate among religious leaders in the Gospels that talks about one of the major things they had an issue with was, the, uh, was their resurrection of the dead. And so it's problematic for these leaders to take heed of what's happened, to recognise the truth that's represented in the testimony of this person. And so rather than embrace the truth, they want to kill Lazarus. How tragically sad and true of humanity that when something threatens our status quo, we'd rather shut it down than let it do what it's supposed to do, which is reveal in us what God wants to change. The washing by the water of the word, renewing our mind, allowing what God is doing, allowing truth to reveal to us who we are and what we need to change. But we're quick to shut it down. So we don't want to see what would point out that we're wrong. And in verse 42, it says, talks about a whole lot of stuff that Jesus has done. And it says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. The second reason why we don't always look like what we need to look like so that the world would recognize that what they want to see is Jesus is because we choose the comfort 
of popularity, of the crowd's opinion, of people in power and with influence. We choose our own power and influence and ability to be in situations. We choose our own over the message that's truth. We sell out the message of Jesus for a more comfortable one that's more palatable, not one that says you have to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow him, not one that says we believe in a God who came as a man, died and was raised from the dead, not one that says we await the return of the king and the fulfillment of the kingdom, not one that says that our ways are not God's ways and so we have to leave behind the old ways, the reason uh, and the things that we talk about leading up to baptism, leaving behind everything that's not of the kingdom and being raised into a new life that looks more like the kingdom. See, these are uncomfortable messages. These are not easy to preach. These are not easy to live. So sometimes we take easier ones. In our Facebook context, it might be that I'm going to ask the universe rather than pray, Jesus, help me. In our business context, it might be that we can give a little to God's work so that God will bless us and give us everything we need, not sell everything you have and give it to the poor, like Jesus said, because his promise is not that one should have abundance, not that one should have prosperity, but that we all should not go without, that all should have everything that they need. That's God's idea of prosperity. See, we choose an easier message. Instead of one that people might call us out and call us wrong or all kinds of other things for. But if we want to be a church, a people, followers of Jesus that go where he goes, wherever he goes, whatever that looks like, wherever he calls us and whatever that costs us, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, that the world recognise from the outside and say, I want to be a part of that. Then we need to recognise that whoever loves their life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world and let me explain that. Whoever, that word hate is the same 
where it's used in a number of contexts where Jesus says you must hate this for the sake of the kingdom. It's a preference for and not a gentle one, one where everything else comes a distinctly uh, distant second according to the kingdom. Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So there's something about a life poured out and it doesn't end there, about a saviour on a cross who lays down his life, but it doesn't end there. A person who submits their life to God, gives it up, those that are choosing to be baptised, laying down their old life in the waters of baptism, but it doesn't end there. It's about being raised into a new life that looks like Jesus, that brings the hope to the world that he promised. And the band can come and join me this morning. See, to be lifted up in the upside down and inside out way that God does things meant for him to give everything, to die a humiliating death on a cross, submitting to all that was wrong in the world so that he could make it all right. For him, his glory is his grace and mercy. We've talked about prayer and fasting and this morning about serving through this period of what some call Lent, some call a time of prayer and fasting because they're afraid of religious labels. And so often we can turn all of those things into an about us thing. We pray to see God move in our lives or to bless me. We fast so that we can develop. We, we talk about it in a way that's self-serving, that it develops the inner strength of, you know, like we, we do it to uh, discipline ourselves. And all of those are, are true, but when we forget the context of what it's for, and we serve in a way that is just about getting our lives right when we look at service, just about making the right decisions for us, dealing with our own personal issues and neglect the bigger things, or where we follow certain rules but neglect how we treat others. Our service, again, becomes self-serving. It's just a sanctified version or outwardly looking so. 
But the great thing about talking about prayer and fasting and service leading up to Easter is we hold it all in the shadow of what Jesus does on the cross and we remember that it can't be about self-serving. It can't be about personal growth or my family or even just my church. But we remember that we serve a God that would give his all, that all would be invited in, that everyone would be welcomed so that we could be a picture of that to the world. So blessed this morning to open up, you know, just the usual, you go on social media when you've got like four hours before you have to be at church because the kids get up at like not even reasonable o'clock. And I see that some friends of mine have begun a service on a Sunday afternoon, a, sen- a low sensory service, so that people with all kinds of intellectual differences can come to church in a place where they can engage and not be distracted, put off or overstimulated. How incredible that they would make a place, not just seats in a service, but actually making a place for people who are different. That's the call of every church. That's what we try to do for some who would otherwise not find a place anywhere in church. And for every congregation that might look different. But our call is not to make seats and spaces for those who already have a seat elsewhere and just move more people down our end of the table, but to make the table longer and invite more people in so that this thing that we call church might look like Jesus who welcomes everybody, who poured out his life to invite everybody in. Close your eyes for a moment. I know that every time I encounter who Jesus is in the world, I am reminded of how far we have to go. Every time I see Jesus in his word, I'm reminded of how far I have to go. And so that's why we, week after week, come and do this thing that we sometimes call church or a service, a gathering. 
because we need to remember. We need to make a space to confess, ask for forgiveness and to grow, to challenge each other, to learn, to see who he is so that we can begin to be more of who he is. So that we wouldn't try to shut down what looks different or challenges us. And that we wouldn't allow our desires for all the things that don't really matter in the long run to cost us the message that is Jesus. Who says, I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Here is a message for you if you've struggled and you feel like you don't make it, that you haven't lived up to this picture because every time we hold up who Jesus is, the reality is we're going to realise we don't. But don't feel condemned this morning, but challenged. Because the message to you is what he says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Does that mean there is no judgment? He goes on to say that it's this very message that reveals to us, that judges us. But he came not so that we would be condemned, but so that we could look to him and be healed and be saved. This world could be healed and saved. He is not about just a judgment on the day that you your life has ended but it's about what he can do in and through you today see we need saving today just as much as we do the day that it's all over we need salvation today And every day. And how we do get that is by recognizing who he is. So Lord, we confess this morning that we have not lived up to who you are and who you call us to be. We've not loved each other our neighbour, the stranger and even our enemy as you first loved us. We ask for your forgiveness this morning. 
that you would come and heal us and lead us in your way. That for the glory of your name, your church would begin to look more like you in this place, in the others on this street, in the others in this city and all around the world, that your church would look more like who you are, that people would recognise that what they want to see is Jesus. Because, Lord, we know that those who look to you find hope. Let's stay in this, um, this atmosphere of coming to the table. I, in preparing for this today, I, I think Pastor Tara was probably um, hearing from exactly the same Spirit of God that I was. And that is awesome because he is one spirit amen and psalm 23 uh, verse 5 came to mind it says that god prepares a table in the presence of our enemies we always think of enemies as you know a battlefield that battlefield looks very different for different people your battlefield your enemy could be an addiction it could be a lack of finance. It could be a physical sickness. It could be stress. It could be mental. It could be a myriad of different things. But it's an enemy. It's a battle you need to fight. And God says, I prepare right in the middle of that situation, right there where you're at, a table. And I lay upon that table everything you need to overcome that battle. I lay upon that table, says God, all the provision, all the healing, all the health, everything you need to overcome that enemy. And how did he do that? By the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself by the blood that was shed and the body that was broken upon that cross, that is what he prepared the table with. Because in that sacrifice is everything we need. In that sacrifice is complete wholeness, is restoration with the Father, is right standing with God himself, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Not because what we can or cannot do, but what Jesus himself has already done. When you come to the table today, know that you're partaking in that very sacrifice. Know that the blood that was shed and the body that was broken was done so completely with no holding back with love, with grace, with mercy. That is what's upon the table. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God more. So come.
you have much faith and you have little. You have been here before and you who have come for the first time. You have tried to follow Jesus. You have failed in following Jesus. And you have decided to follow Jesus for the very first time. Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now if necessary and go be forgiver and run back. Because it's the Lord who invites you. It's God's will that those who desire Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit should encounter him here. So come. Church, we have come as we are, but by his grace we are sent out not the same. For in this space, the spirit that anointed Christ has been poured out on us. He has exchanged a crown of beauty for our ashes, the oil of joy for our sorrow, a garment of praise for our spirit of despair. He has spoken over us a new name, Oaks of Integrity, and prophesied that we will grow into a canopy of his beauty to bless and rebuild this city in his unfailing nonviolent love. So go, broadcast good news for the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, prophesy freedom for the captives, let the blind see, set free the oppressed, live jubilee and forgive, blessing our enemies, because Christ has shut the book on vengeance. Go now in his liberating love that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, Palm Sunday next week. I'm looking forward to seeing you all there.